We are rapidly coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This will be our second to last sermon in the series, which we have entitled, Living on Earth, the Kingdom of Heaven. A few weeks ago, a pastor whom I greatly respect, uh, Dr. Steve Washburn, pastor of First Baptist Church in Pflugerville, was approached by a group of three young men and a lady who worshipped with them in the church that particular morning. They had their CD in hand, and they wanted to do a Christian concert for uh, Pflugerville Baptist Church, or at Pflugerville Baptist Church. Not knowing them very well, Dr. Washburn asked them about their conversion experiences, and their responses were a little weak. The Yiguang woman mentioned in her conversion testimony that her boyfriend, which was one of the men in the group, had, a, had grown up a Baptist and had had a, a great influence on her spiritual growth. Now, because of his experience, uh, Dr. Washburn had an intuition to ask them if they were living together. And they very openly said they were. The pastor said they could not do a concert because they were living in open disobedience to the Lord. The leader of the group then said to the pastor, Pastor, we are sinners saved by grace, not by works of righteousness. Scripture says we are not to judge lest we will be judged, and you are judging us. Pastor, surely you do not believe in sinless perfection. The pastor said, We don't believe in sinless perfection, but we do believe in sinless progression. In other words, we're all striving to get better at not sinning. We all stumble, but none of us is willing to continue to live in known sin. Then the pastor asked them if they had read the book of 1 John. And he said, I will be only as judgmental as the Apostle John. Then he quoted John, 1 John 1, 5 and 6, where it says, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. He put his arm around the young woman and looked at her boyfriend and said, you owe this young woman an apology. You are taking advantage of her and causing her to sin. If you love her, you should apologize to her. And if you love the Lord, you should apologize to him. Move into your own place and no longer live with this young woman or be intimate with her. And the couple and the group agreed, and they departed. How amazing that self-professed Christians have started to consider all talks of sin or confronting sin as judgmental to the point that when we hear someone point out sin in our lives or in the lives of others, 
our first reaction, our first verse that we quote is, do not judge. And yet, one of Jesus' commands in the Sermon on the Mount, as we come close to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, is this command, do not judge, lest you be judged. What is Jesus teaching through this command? And more so, how is the kingdom teaching us to think through these commands of judging? Well, to this subject, I would like to point our attention this morning. Kingdom perspectives on judging, discerning, and asking. Would you open scripture to Matthew chapter 7? We'll be reading from verse 1 all the way to verse 12. If you are using one of the Bibles that we provide in the chairs in front of you, you may find this passage on page 840. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 to 12. Here's the word of the Lord for us and for our hearts this morning. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Amen. This was the word of the Lord for our hearts and for our congregation this morning. Let's bow to the Lord in prayer. Father, we recognize that every gift, every good gift comes from you. And Father, the greatest gift we have received is the revelation of your word, is the revelation of your will, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And today, Father, we want to submit to you, we want to acknowledge you and ask, would you speak to us again through your holy word? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, this passage that we have read this morning is in many ways music to our ears. It is music to the ears of our society. The command not to judge or do not judge 
is one of those truths from the Bible known by, even by those who do not read the Bible. Somehow this command entered into the stream of, of our culture so that even non-Christians know it, and they remind us of it quite often. And then there's another command that is often used even by non-Christians, the command or the teaching, seek and you will find, ask and you shall receive, knock and it shall be opened to you. And I have wondered, why is it that our society has adopted these principles so widely? Is it possible that our culture adopted these principles because we have become a culture of tolerance and non-judgment? and a culture of chronic materialism. But I wonder if Christians have also begun cherishing these principles for the same reasons. Why are these verses among some of the only verses that we have memorized? Now, Just as we have done throughout this series, I would like for us to look more closely at what Jesus is intending to teach us by these commands. Let's look first at kingdom perspectives on judging and discerning, verses 1 through 6. Now, Jesus began this passage that we have read uh, by the command, do not judge. And then he gives three reasons. Look at verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. And that's a pretty good reason not to judge. Look at the second reason. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. Another good reason not to judge. And a third reason, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Another good reason not to judge. Now, if that's all Jesus said, and then he moved on to a different teaching, we would have some significant trouble and problems with what other verses say in the New Testament about judging. Elsewhere in the New Testament, in the passage that we have heard earlier in this ver in the service, Paul said to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 5, 3, Even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in the Spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. Did Paul not know of the Sermon on the Mount? And then a few verses later, he turns to the entire church, not just to him. He says, you church, verse 12 and 13, what business of mine is it to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked men from among you. Now, friends, I don't need to do a lot of explanation to you, but that sounds pretty judgmental. Don't you think? But not only Paul taught the principle that the church should take such an action, Jesus also taught this principle in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Jesus taught his disciples to confront sin. First, one-on-one, -on -one, and if it does not lead to repentance, to involve two other witnesses, and if it does not lead to repentance at that level, to involve the entire church. And finally, if it doesn't lead to repentance, the church would no longer consider that person a follower of Christ. Now that sounds pretty judgmental, doesn't it? Did Jesus forget, forget in Matthew 18 what he taught earlier in Matthew 7? 
Did he have a bad memory, like we all do have once in a while? I don't think so. Even though Jesus gave the command, do not judge in verse 1 of chapter 7, if you go to, chapter, to verse 6 of this passage, there's an interesting prohibition. Jesus says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. Now, friends, without giving a lot of explanation, discerning which people fall in the category of dogs and pigs is an act of judgment, isn't it? So how do we consider these verses? Is Jesus contradicting himself? Are these verses contradicting with other passages of, of the New Testament? Well, there is no contradiction in the Bible, and Jesus was not contradicting himself. We have to read these commands in the context and, and read carefully so we don't understand. And before we, before we look at what exactly Jesus is seeking to correct, let's be clear what Jesus is not teaching, what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying, by giving the command, do not judge, he's not saying that we should not judge so that we will escape judgment. Everyone will be judged. Everyone must appear before the throne of God, before the judgment seat of Christ. I wonder if some people today might refrain from judging others as a strategy for them to escape the judgment of God. I wonder if some people say, well, if I'm not going to be judgmental of others, I'm hoping and I pray, because it says in the Bible, that God won't judge me. Friends, if you're not a Christian this morning, I want to tell you that there is only one way to escape the judgment of God, and that way is through repentance and faith in Christ. If you have not surrendered your life to God and believed in Christ's death on the cross to pay for your guilty stand, no matter how non-judgmental you try to be, you will be judged. But if you recognize you are a sinner, and if you repent of your sin, and you believe that Christ came to pay for your eternal penalty, you can become a child of God, born of God, adopted into the family of God, which is manifested visibly here on earth through the church. And if you would like to know more about this offer that God is giving you today to escape the judgment, I will be standing on the hallways at the end of the service, and I would love to talk to you some more. But friends, Jesus is not saying that we should not judge so that we would escape judgment. A second thing Jesus is not saying, he's not saying by the, by the command, do not judge, he's not saying that Christians should not discern between wrong and good, between right and, and evil. Jesus is not saying that Christians should not discern between true Christians and false pretenders to the faith. Later in this very chapter, in chapter 7, in verse 15, Jesus tells us and warns his disciples to be careful of false prophets. Jesus says, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So Jesus is not saying that we should not discern between those who truly follow God and those who are sheep, who are wolves in sheep's clothing. 
Jesus said later in the same chapter, verse 20, by their fruits you will recognize them. Now, all of these assume some sort of practice of judging and judgment and discerning, which as we as Christians and we as a church body are called to carry out. So the question comes, so what then is Jesus teaching when he says, do not judge, lest you be judged? Well, I think the answer is found in the illustration that Jesus gives in this very passage. We need to look closely at verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. Look at the illustration that Jesus gives here, verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Now, a speck is a, it's a, it's a splinter. It's a small chip, a very small object. The, the plank on the other side, or the log, is a, a piece of a, of a heavy timber. Usually, it was used as a beam uh, in roof construction. And Jesus is giving a very, very visual picture, a very visual contrast be between someone who had a, a small, tiny speck and someone who had a big plank, a big beam in his eye. Of course, humanly speaking, this is impossible. But Jesus is pointing out the contrast of someone who carries with him an unexamined and unrepentant sin and yet goes around examining others of their sin. Jesus drives the same point home again when he uses a rhetorical question in verse 4. Look at verse 4. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Now notice there's something different about this question. Notice in this scenario, the man with a plank is asking for permission to the man with a speck. He's not doing this without his permission. But the issue is, even if permission is granted, that's still not enough. Because to have a log in your eye means you are blind and unable to make any godly judgments about the presence of sin in your life or in the lives of others. So the issue Jesus is addressing is not simply do not judge. But the issue Jesus is addressing is judging others while not judging ourselves. Why are we interested in the sins of others more than in our own sins? Have you ever wondered about that? Is it because we see better the sins of others than our own sins? Uh, after all, this is what the imagery seems to suggest. We are inclined to see easier a speck in someone else's eye than a log in my own eye, in our own eyes. How sinful human nature is. We see better a small, tiny particle of speck in someone else's eye, but we don't see the log in our own eyes. How sinful, how sinful our human nature is. We even take more pleasure in dealing with the, with the sin of someone else 
than our own sin. And we like talking about it. But we would dare talk about our own sin to someone else. How wicked our sinful nature is. Rightly, Jesus addresses such a man by the words, You hypocrite! And here's what such a man ought to do to get rid of hypocrisy. Not just confess it. It's helpful to confess to one another that we're hypocrites. But don't just confess it. Here's what Jesus says, You hypocrite! First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Friends, the imagery of a clean eye here in chapter 7 echoes back from what Jesus taught in chapter 6. You remember a few Sundays ago, we talked about the, the clean eye that Jesus preached about in chapter 6 when he talked about having a good eye that gives good light to the whole body. And in chapter 6, having a good eye was an important part for our self-examination so we will not be self-deceived. Because throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was warning against the danger of self-deception. Self-deception is a real danger we must guard against. And when we have clean eyes, Jesus gives us a wonderful promise. Not only will there be light in our own body, but when we have clean eyes, then you will see clearly to take out the speck from your brother's eye. Friends, this is such an important promise. When we have clean eyes, we will see clearly to take out the speck from our brother's eye. Now, Jesus is not saying here, if we are sinless, then and only then we can judge. None of us would match that standard. None of us. If you think you are sinless, you are a liar. But to have clean eyes means to see sin in our lives and to address it and to fight against it and to repent of it. Clean eyes means not the absence of sin, but the absence of an unrepented sin. Clean eyes is a presence of judging ourselves and confessing our failures and inviting other brothers or sisters to help us to forsake that sin. That is the meaning of a clean eye. Remember the couple that was living together and came to the pastor to ask him to do a Christian concert? They became totally blinded to their own rebellion. They stopped judging themselves. They stopped practicing what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one, But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. Friends, in a culture that worships tolerance towards sin and ungodliness, the church of Jesus Christ is called to be intolerant towards sin, but inviting sinners to turn to God in faith and repentance so they could experience the forgiveness of God, the acceptance of God, the true freedom that frees us from the toils of sin. Some people today think that the church should not or should be the place where people don't judge one another. Period. 
But that is not exactly true according to the Bible. The church is the assembly of those who have been bought back by Jesus Christ. The church is the assembly of those who have been purchased by His blood so that we would no longer serve sin, so that we would no longer give our bodies as instruments of sin, but give our bodies as instruments of righteousness. Therefore, the church should be the place where people judge themselves and watch over one another where we do point out the presence of unrepented sin in ourselves and in the lives of other people, and where we gently, lovingly, and deliberately help them to get out of their sinful patterns and thinking. We do that as an act of love for them, because God loved them enough to rescue them from sin and to, to destroy the works of sin in their lives. So when we allow when we tolerate sin, unrepented sin, let me phrase that, when we allow unrepented sin in our own lives and in the lives of others, we do a very ungodly thing to our brothers and sisters. We do a very unloving sin or act to them. The greatest thing we can do for them is to point out their blindness. Yes, it may be painful. Yes, it may be very painful when brother, a brother points out a sin in my own life. I may not accept it very well at first. But friends, if my heart has been changed by God's grace at some point in the past to love righteousness more than sin, sooner or later I will thank that brother or sister for pointing out to me the sin to which I was blinded. Does this characterize you this morning? Jesus ends this section with a very unusual and difficult command in verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. This is a very difficult command. A very difficult command to understand. What is Jesus prohibiting us to do? Well, again, I think, it's, I think it, it's wise for us to understand what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that we should give up on those unbelievers who refuse to hear the gospel. We should never give up on them. Now, that doesn't mean that you should shove down the gospel down their throat all the time. No, you, you should do that. You should be careful and wise as you present the gospel. You should pray and, and trust in God's sovereign will that He will bring sinners to repent. But gently and wisely and patiently continue to bear witness to them. So what is then the meaning of this verse? Well, I think an important hint in this imagery, uh, in, this, in this command, is the imagery of dogs and pigs. And I know none of you would like to fit in that category. I know how insulted you would be to find yourself or someone else to call you or to think of you in that category. But Jesus is using an imagery, dogs and pigs. Who are they? Well, I think a hint is found in the way the Apostle Peter, many years later, the one who heard the expression of Jesus, 
Many years later, we'd write in his second letter to Peter, second letter of, of Peter, chapter 2, verse 17 to 22. He's writing about people who once were Christians, who thought themselves to be Christians, but they have walked away from the faith. And here's what Peter writes. Here's how he writes about such people. These men are springs without water, mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to know, not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. The only place in the New Testament where the image of a dog and a pig is put together outside of the Sermon on the Mount is in 2 Peter chapter 2. This passage is clearly claiming that there are people who pretend for a while to be saints. They pretend to be Christians. They live among Christians. They do Christian things. They talk Christian things. They sing Christian songs. But they fall away from the faith. Not just as a little slip, but they fall away from the faith because they were never part of it. Their inner nature has never been changed, even though they appear to know the Lord. A dog will turn to his vomit and a swine to her wallowing. Why? Because their nature has never been transformed. How is verse 6 connected to what Jesus said in verse 1 through 5? Well, verse 6 calls believers to be discerning about the true nature of certain people. There are people who can, for a while, pretend to be great Christians. It does not mean that their nature has been changed. Try to point to someone an unrepentant sin in their lives. First of all, no one will take it well. It doesn't matter how mature you are. It does not feel good when someone points to you a sin in your life. But if that person's nature has been converted by God, sooner or later that person will be convicted and will repent. But if they don't repent, even after multiple attempts of bringing them up to their own sin or bringing them to, to see their unrepentance and their hardness of heart, if they do not repent, and more, if they start raging and if they, if they start fighting and responding with evil against you, or they might even start devising evil against you, it is a possible indication that that person may have never been converted in the first place. And in such cases, 
we should not give dogs what is sacred. Paul told the church in Corinth to expel such a man from their midst. He told Titus in Titus 3.10, warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time and after that have nothing to do with him. And remember what Jesus told the church in Matthew 18. If someone refuses to repent of a known sin, a sin that has been brought to their attention, after the entire church would plead with that person to repent, the church is called to treat such a person a pagan or like a pagan. Now, our hope, whenever we do that, our hope should always be restoration. But there are some people who will never return back. They will never be restored back because they were never with us to begin with. My friend, if you are a Christian this morning, this is a great warning for all of us. What do you do when someone points out sin in your life? Do you start kicking and screaming? Have you fallen, fallen in the trap of not allowing other Christians to point out sin in your life? And when someone does point out a sin in your life, even if you're not kicking and screaming, do you tend to point them to this verse, do not judge, as a way to shut them off and not let them get into your business, like the couple at the church in Pflugerville? Friend, the greatest thing you can do for yourself is to allow others to judge the sin in your life and to seek God by God's grace to forsake that sin so that you too can clearly see what you're going through and what others are going through so that you too may have the blessing of, of clean eyes with no planks with not even a speck. My friend, do you desire to grow in judging your own sin? One of the greatest ways you can do that is to have an accountability relationship with another person of the same gender and share your struggles and ask them to keep you accountable about your weaknesses so that together you may see God's grace for your life. Friends, it's so easy for us to fight those external sins by ourselves. We know the peer pressure that comes from those external sins. But it's so much more difficult to fight and, 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 and forsake the inner sins of our hearts that no one knows. And unless we share some of those out with someone and ask for their help to, to help us stay, stay on the task, people may never know. Friend, I encourage you this is a gift that God gives to us so that we may be walking around with good vision, with clear eyes. It's a wonderful act of God's love and concern for us. It's so much more difficult, so much more difficult to fight those inner sins that no one knows about. And that's why here at Parkers Baptist Church, we want to encourage you. We want to encourage believers. Fight sin. Grow in judging sin in your, your own life and invite others to help you in that process so that as we do that together, we may be healed of our blind spots. Friends, in this text, Jesus is pointing out our inability to judge correctly 
because of blindness, because of the logs in our own eyes. But his desire is that we would be healed so that we can judge well, so that we can discern well. And this is the call of the kingdom. And finally, Jesus, after he gives this, this teaching on judging, on kingdom perspectives, on, on judging and discerning, he moves to a final, a final thought in the sermon, in the, final, the end of the second point in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives a threefold command. He says in verse 7 and 8, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, if you, it, all these commands are in the present tense, which in English may not mean much, but in the Greek language is a significant indicator. Because it means that's an ongoing action. It's not just a command for one-time action. It's an ongoing action. In other words, Jesus is saying, keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep seeking and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be open. Jesus here is, is apparently teaching about perseverance in our seeking. But seeking what? More material things? Many people take this threefold command totally out of context. They use these to ask for more money, to ask for another job, to ask for more material things. However, we have to understand this command just like we have understood all of them in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. This command is related to what Jesus taught earlier in chapter 6. Do you remember how chapter 6 ended? Jesus taught his disciples, Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And all these other things shall be given to you. That thought of seeking first the kingdom of heaven, now just a few verses later in chapter 7, Jesus brings up and says, keep on seeking. Keep on searching. Keep on asking. Keep on knocking. Knocking what? Seeking what? Searching for what? The things of the kingdom. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And Jesus gives two, exa two examples. Verse 9 through 11, he says, Imagine father, two fathers being asked by their children for bread or for fish. No earthly father would consider giving them uh, stones instead of bread or snakes instead of fish. And after these images, Jesus masterfully concludes in verse 11, If you then, though you are evil... What a positive description of us, right? If you then, though you, are, you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? Again, don't think here only of material things, or don't think primarily of material things. Jesus said the same thing in Luke 11 with an important change. And here's what Jesus said in Luke 11. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Friends, the primary object of our seeking and searching and knocking should be the kingdom of heaven, should be the things of the Spirit. Keep on seeking, keep on asking, 
Keep on searching, and it will be given to you. Then finally, in verse 12, Jesus wraps up this point. But this point is not just a wrap-up to, to chapter 7. This point is really like a bookend to this sermon. Here's what Jesus says. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, most people, when they think about this verse, they think only about the golden rule, which Christians and non-Christians alike may, may use. But they forget to read this golden rule in the context. Jesus says, for this sums up the law and the prophets. In other words, the golden rule is based on the teaching of the law and the prophets. And the prophets constantly try to turn the nation in the Old Testament. They constantly try to turn the nation back from idols, from religious duplicity to a single-minded obedience and focus of the people onto God. In other words, don't live with two standards. This was the message of the prophets through the Old Testament. Don't live with two standards. We treat others differently than we treat ourselves. We judge others, but we don't judge ourselves. Now, by using this reference to the law and the prophets, Jesus is not just referring to the Old Testament. Now, Jesus is putting a bookend to this entire major second point of the sermon. Do you remember how the first point of the Sermon on the Mount began? In chapter 5, verse 17, the, the, the beginning of the first major point of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus referred to the law and the prophets. And there he said he claimed that he came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but he came to fulfill them. And now Jesus comes back to this point telling us a summary of the law and the prophets. But this time, it is not Jesus, but us who are called to live out the law and the prophets, forsaking duplicity and pursuing first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Is this you, my friend, this morning? Does this characterize you? Let us pray. Father, we come close to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and we feel guilty because none of us can stand in good conscience and claim to be free of sin. None of us can claim that we have not fallen into duplicity at some point in our lives, and some of us may be in it right now. We're treating others worse than ourselves, and we're treating even you with so much, with so less care than we treat ourselves. Father, we confess that we prefer to pursue our happiness and comfort more than we want to pursue your kingdom and righteousness. We confess that we often, in our vision, we are darkened by unrepentant sin in our lives. Father, forgive us, cleanse us, and give us the strength to take out the plank of our own eyes so that we may see clearly. Father, I pray that you comfort us with the promise of your word that when we do confess our sin, when we, when we do forsake sin in our lives, you do give us a clear vision. Father, we do not want to judge others more than we judge ourselves. 
Father, teach us that we should examine and judge ourselves in light of your word. Oh, Lord, we truly want your reign to be manifested in our lives here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us the grace so that we may seek first after your kingdom and after your righteousness. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.